the power of trust. How can boards build it, lose it and regain it? Trust is the most potent force underlying the success of every board. When trust is in the room, great things can happen. Yet it can be shattered in an instant with a devastating impact on the performance and effectiveness of the board and potentially and ultimately a company's market cap and reputation. How can boards build and sustain trust in the boardroom and with stakeholders? When it is lost, what can boards do to regain it? I'm delighted to talk with Professor Sandra Sucher. Sandra is Professor of Management Practice at Harvard Business School and an internationally recognized trust researcher. She's on the Edelman Trust Institute Advisory Board, collaborates with Deloitte on Trust IQ, and collaborates with PwC on their Trust Leadership Institute. Welcome to the Better Boards podcast series. I'm Dr. Sabine Demkowski, founder and managing partner of Better Boards. We make the boards of the most ambitious organizations more effective. Our mission at Better Boards is to contribute to creating better boards. We do this by providing clients with an evidence-based approach for board evaluations and board development programs. Better Boards clients have access to an innovative digital platform that provides data and comparisons on all dimensions of effective boards, and they can use the platform for the internal as well as part of the external evaluation. To fulfill our mission, we give a voice to all who care about creating better boards. Sandra, thank you so, so much. It's a great honor to have you and uh, thank you for making time to contribute to the Better Boards podcast series. Well, thank you so much for asking me. I'm delighted to be here. Oh, that's fantastic. Before we talk about this really interesting issue of trust, how do you see the role of the board actually? You know, I, I'm so glad you asked that. I think that boards are probably the most important contributor to companies being trusted. And I say that with all due respect for the CEO and the management team and the business. But my view of the role of the board is that the board is obligated to act on behalf of the corporation and its shareholders. And so what that means is that the board actually is the ongoing life of the company. That's mm. the thing it is supposed to be stewarding and paying attention to, uh, even beyond any given CEO and his or her tenure. And in my experience working on these issues with boards, the real issue is that boards need to be the permission givers for many of the actions that companies and their leaders need to take. If you think about the global environment and what it causes, how what we know about why people mm. trust organizations, they trust them to pay attention to interest to multiple stakeholders, not just shareholders, but of course, customers, employees, and the communities where they do business. And even if you think about climate change, future generations. And so trust is this multi-stakeholder issue where companies are expected to actually be able to act on behalf of all of those stakeholders. But the leaders of companies need permission to actually do that. And that permission comes from the board. The board is the group that actually is helping the company try to figure out how it can manage in this multi-stakeholder world. So that's why I think the board is so important. 
to helping a company earn and deserve trust because it's the board that says, you know what, when we think about all the people we're responsible for, we want you to take a broad view of that and to include more than just the people who are providers of capital. Before we dive in much, much more, a very simple question. What is trust actually? First, I'll I'll give you a definition, and then I'll talk a little bit about it. So trust is a willingness to be vulnerable to the actions and intentions of others. So, you know, we trust organizations and leaders to do things for us that we can't do for ourselves. And because we have to trust them, we're vulnerable to how it is that they exercise the power that they have over us. And that power can either be to fulfill our interests and needs or to actually act in ways that doesn't actually help us. And so that's why the definition of trust always focuses on this notion of willing vulnerability. And it's rooted in the power of the party that I'm trusting in to provide me with the things I'm trusted them for. And so we usually think of trust as like a two-part relationship. So, you know, Sandra trusts Sabine, but it's actually a three-part relationship where Sandra trusts Sabine to do something in particular. So trust isn't general. Trust is always rooted in an action that I'm expecting the other party to perform. And there's a benefit to understanding trust this way. It helps those of us in business to feel that we're doing something that's familiar work, which is we're being expected to do something. We have to figure out how to do it and how to make good on that expectation. Trust is like that. It's grounded in action and it's quite specific to you earn or lose trust in individual interactions that the company's consumers or its employees have with it. And so that notion of trust is vulnerability rooted in particular actions is, I think, a useful way to start. And it all starts, of course, what's happening in the boardroom itself. Because what we see in these board evaluations we are doing, that very often members of boards don't really trust each other. And it starts there and it has a great ripple effect far beyond the boardroom. Yes, Sabine, my research, our research uh, absolutely confirms that impression that you have. One of the most important findings from the research and the work that we've done is that uh, trust is built from the inside out. It's very difficult to be trusted by people outside an organization if the people within it don't trust each other to begin with. And that's certainly true. You can imagine how true that is for employees needing to trust the company in order to deliver good products and services to their customers. And it's definitely true in a boardroom, which is a small team environment where lots of risk-taking is required as people talk about difficult issues. And that means that I'm more or less willing to take risks depending on whether or not I trust the other people in the room. And that is what we are seeing, because I'm glad that you talk about risks, because with a lot of these new challenges, cybersecurity, ESG, climate, board members have to take great risks because there is no definite answer. You can't think linearly what the solution is. You actually have to take a risk in every decision you make with regards to these topics. I think that that's definitely true. And One of the most interesting risks that a board needs to take at this particular point in time is the risk to admit that there are things it doesn't know and that it needs (laughs) other people to tell them about. 
Uh, and that's difficult. You know, if I'm asked to be on a board and I've been on boards, it's because of what I know and what I can contribute. And people are not that happy to be in a position to sort of say, you know what, I'm kind of tapped out on this thing. I don't really understand what's at risk here. And it's hard for me to weigh in properly because I don't have a good understanding. And board members are so time pressed to get the normal business of the board done that it's hard to kind of take that step back and say, for this decision that we're making, which is quite consequential, we may not know as much as we might need to know. And you don't want to pursue truth for its own sake, but it's more what's the context in which we need to understand this thing better. And what can members of boards really do to gain the trust of their colleagues where all of this, what you described, is actually possible? Well, so let me give you a formula. What we have found out is a framework for what we know is the basis on which people trust. And so when people trust, and this is true for individuals and especially true as well for organizations, the first thing that they trust in is that the other party is competent. And so without sort of core competence, there is no reason to trust another because we're trusting people or organizations to do things. And so the first thing that board members can do is just be clear on sort of what it is that they're good at, what they're there for, and to make sure that they actually can do that really well, contribute in their sort of expected role uh, and be competent. Competence also has some dimensions. That's kind of technical competence. There's also a more managerial competence, which is things like the ability to read a room, the ability to sort of see, are we actually helping each other here? And there's a way of people being more better process managers who are sensitive to the dynamics of what's going on in the board and competent in helping the board understanding what's happening at any given point in time. So there's kind of technical competence, there's managerial competence, and both of those help people be trusted, right? You know, well, that's the person who always helps us when we get to a sticky wicket is the notion. The second basis on which people trust is, is people's motives. And the reason my motives are important, this is the intent question, is that if I'm vulnerable to someone else, if they have power over me, that's a, a time and what is motivating them becomes really, really important for me to understand. Right. If, I, if my life is in that person's hands, I want to know, are they going to use the power that they have for good? Are they going to try to help and benefit me? Or are they going to try in some way to not help me and possibly hurt me? And so our belief in other people's motives is a central part of trusting them. And motives are the way that we show whose interests we take into account. So we can't get inside the head of the other person. But what we can say is, well, When it comes down to it, whose interest is this person standing for? Is it just for their own interests or other people's interests as well? So that's the second dimension. It's this dimension of motives, and it's the second dimension on which people trust. The third is more in the domain of sort of how you get things done. And that's a kind of a means dimension where you say, I trust people because I expect them largely to be fair. They're going to take appropriate account of getting all the information they need. They're going to have good processes for coming to decisions. They're going to treat me and other people fairness, sharing information when they have it, letting us know in time that we need to do something. And so, you know, it's important to be competent. It's important to have motives that other people recognize as taking their interest into account. And it's very important to be seen as fair, to be operating in a way that's fair and to have fair means. And then the last dimension yeah. is actually is impact. 
And this is judged separately from the first three. And impact is the real on the ground effect of your actions on me. And so what the impact category says is separate from what you intended, separate from even how you went about it, or even how competent you are, is the net effect of your actions on me one that's positive and beneficial or negative. And when I trust people, I'm not just trusting them to kind of in the general be competent or to have these things. I'm trusting them based on the effect of their actions on me and the way that they work out. So it's those four dimensions. It's competence, it's motives, it's means, and it's impact. And those are ways in which, honestly, any board member can start to say, well, if I even look at my own performance, you know, how do I think about the way people see me when they judge me against those? That's very, very helpful and leads me nicely to the next question because our listeners always love practical tips and tricks on how they can improve their practice. Can you maybe give some examples what board members could do to gain the trust of their colleagues? So I think that one of the most important things that board members can do is to talk about why it is that they believe that something's important to do. You know, that's always a useful thing to do, but particularly in a board meeting where we're trying to figure out a, a difficult situation that we're trying to understand what action we're going to take. What helps me if I'm another person sitting at the table is both what it is that you think we should do and why. And the why is what gives me insight into your motives, how you're thinking about what this is good for us, good for all of us. It gives me insight into the reasoning that you're applying to it. And the reason it's important is that a, a debate about actions is actually not a great debate to have. What you want to have is debate about the reasons for action so that people can be quite clear on what it is, what's the goal that we're trying to accomplish here. And then the actions fall out of that. So the first thing is actually to be quite clear about why it is that you think a certain thing can be done. And that leads you to this other kind of a discussion. No, that's very, very helpful. I've actually seen this in action with some great chairs I observed. So it's a very, very good point to remind listeners of. Let's face it, it's quite easy to lose trust. So what can a board member really do if they feel that another colleague on the boardroom or the board lost trust? Explain more about the why or is there something else they could do? So the good news here, Sabine, is that there's actually quite a lot of uh, very good empirical research on how you recover from lost trust. And when I was first starting, I had no idea that uh, that there was even this body of research that people have looked at. But because you know the situations where trust seems to matter so much is when it's, there's a trust betrayal, there's been a lot of research about it. And so it turns out that the recovering from lost trust, I'll give you the apology formula. The formula here is the first thing that you have to do is you have to acknowledge the harm that you've done and you have to apologize for it. That's as true at the personal level, you know, as it is for uh, something that the corporation has done. That's the beginning, which is this acknowledgement of harm. And that's really where you're taking into account what has happened to the other person. And so the best apologies, if you look at them, are always grounded in a perspective that starts with what is it that we've done to this other person? What are we sorry about? And making it very clear that they understand what they've done. And that's part of how you start to rebuild trust is people go, well, at least they know what the effect they had on me. And so that starts to build some confidence that I could trust them again. 
The second thing you need to do is you do need to explain what happened, as you just said. And so explanation is the second step. And, you know, we've all seen examples of pretty awful corporate apologies, which are in the passive voice, you know, mistakes occurred. And that's not actually, you know, what people want to hear. They want to hear, here's what we did wrong. And the reason they, that's so important is that if you know what you did wrong, I can start to build some confidence that you might be able to fix this thing. But if you don't know what you did wrong, you can't explain it to me clearly. I have no confidence that you're going to be able to do something differently about it. So there have been a spate of layoffs in the United States and largely in the tech sector uh, fueled by overhiring. And, you know, a couple of one CEO in particular, a, a guy at Stripe, which is not a U.S. company, is actually been pretty good at sort of saying, you know, we overhired. This was a mistake that we made. We didn't understand, you know, what was going to happen. Uh, we thought that this pandemic-inspired growth would go on forever. And that was the mistake that we made. So you might not be happy that they knew that they did that, but at least it reassures you that they understand what they did wrong. And then the third step is what's called, uh, in trust terms, an offer of repair. So, you know, the first is I've acknowledged, I've acknowledged and said, I'm sorry. The second is I've explained what happened. And then inevitably you want someone to say, well, what are you going to do about this? And that usually takes two stripes. You know, one view of it is, you know, here's how I'm going to make you whole. So I was a chief quality officer, worked at Fidelity for a decade. And so quite often, you know, the problems we had to deal with were when we had to, you know, give millions of dollars because of some problem that we had with the trade to a customer. If you're in a restaurant and, you know, someone has kept you waiting for an hour for your food, you kind of automatically expect them to pay for, you know, something at the end of the meal, a bottle of wine, something that shows that they know that they've done this wrong. So that's kind of the direct offer of repair, making the other person whole. The other is committing to people that you're going to fix the thing that led to the mistake in the first place. And that's a different kind of an offer of repair. You know, that's something like PwC announced the wrong winner for best picture. And they then went on a very intentional effort to understand exactly how did the wrong envelope end up in someone's hands on the stage at the Oscars. And what they did is they fixed that process. So that's the other way that you repair is that you go in and you do a good root cause analysis and you fix the steps that need to be fixed in order to make sure that doesn't happen again. You know, and this is, you know, usually there are jokes about commercials on TV. Don't try this at home. Uh, do try this at home. <laughs> you know, this is a very mm. good. It's an excellent formula and it's very practical and actionable. So sadly, we have to come to the end. And I always ask, what are the three things our listeners should really take away from this podcast? So uh, the first thing is just that boards have a really central role to play in helping companies become trusted and earn trust over time and recover it if it's lost. The second is that inside the board, it's important to be mindful of building trusting relationships, uh, that that's hard work, and uh, but it pays off enormously in the contentious decisions that boards need to make. And the third is just a very practical question that I suggest that board members use when they're facing a big decision, which is in this decision, uh, will this cause us to earn trust or to lose trust and with whom? Fantastic. Sandra, thank you ever so much for contributing to the Better Bots podcast series. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Sabine. 
As always, please do not hesitate to get in touch if you would like to learn more about our work or book a demo for the Better Boards Board Evaluation Platform. You can best reach us at info at better-boards.com. Thank you for listening.